All right. Well, welcome to the fourth class on Ecclesiastes. We're small but mighty this morning, right? Um, I think a number of folks probably won't make it because of the snow, but thank you for showing up this morning. Why don't we um, start out? Let me just do a quick reminder of what we're here about is to, um, to understand and internalize the message of Ecclesiastes, which is how we fear God and enjoy the life that he gives us. So let me open with prayer. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for each person that's able to make it here. And we think of those that aren't. We pray that uh, whatever their situation, that you would be with them, that you would uh, lead them and guide them, that you would give them a sense of your presence. Would you be part of our class this morning, Lord? Would your spirit lead and guide each of our conversations? Would you give us insight into how we should live based on what we see in your word? Would your spirit continue to use your word to turn us, to, to, to make us more like you as we uh, live our lives to uh, follow you and to seek to make your kingdom uh, grow both in our hearts, Lord, and in the world around us. Thank you for the time we have this morning, and we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week, Eric talked about time and seasons. What do you remember from that? Anything? Time and seasons. Eric, do you remember anything from last week? Do I remember anything from last week? Well, a lot of things. Uh, time seems to be something that sabotages us. And uh, enjoy things while they last. <laughs> enjoy things while they last. And um, he, a couple of other things I'll mention is that talked about time being limited. Right, so we don't have unlimited time, um, which is true. So we should enjoy things while they last. And one of the things that I liked his talking about is limiting is humbling. Right, it humbles us to be limited, and yet it is humility that allows us to draw near to God. So humility is an important part and aspect of all that we do as we relate to God. And and we'll see a little bit of that this morning. But that is an important. Uh, characteristics. And finally, Jesus gives us the new life that is life everlasting. Both a life in his kingdom today as we follow him and a life in eternity forever with him. So those were some of the things that Eric kind of uh, wrapped up with last week. I've got two things. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, are you turned on? I am turned on. Okay. And two, uh, uh, we are like God, but we're not like God. Yeah, okay. Great. So, let's start then by reading Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, which is where we will be focused today. And I will read for us. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they have no comfort. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This, too, is hevel, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something hevel under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom I am toiling, he asked, 
And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is Hevel, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty without his kingdom, or within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There is no end to all the people who were uh, before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is Hevel, a chasing after the wind. Okay. So let's start then by looking as we like to do in the garden. What did God have to say about the garden? In Genesis 2, 18 and 19, then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. And they heard the sound of the Lord... Skipping forward to 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So I want to point out several things in this passage. And we'll start with the fact that God says it's not good for man to be alone. We are built to be in fellowship, in communion, in community. And seeing that that he was alone, God made a helper for him. Now, the Hebrew word is etzer, and that is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's help for his people. So, we're not talking kind of a master-slave relationship here. We're talking a side-by-side relationship is what God had in mind when he made a helper for man. Second thing I want you to notice is that God worked and walked with the man. So we saw uh, God was bringing animals to man to name. And man would name him and then God would bring the next animal. So the two of them were working together. And God walked with them. Now we, we only see a snippet there, which is after the fall and when God, God came back to see Adam and Eve. But but it was, it's clear from the passage that that was his custom. In the cool of the evening, he would come and he would walk with them. And they would enjoy the garden. They would enjoy his creation. So they worked together and they enjoyed God's creation together. That was God's relationship with man. That was the kind of relationship God intended to, for man to have with God and for man to have with each other. So, um, under the sun, you just need to go a couple of verses further in chapter 3. Now we get to 3.12 and 3.13. And the man says to God, the woman, not a name, not Eve, the woman that you gave me, your fault, God, not mine, right? The woman that you gave me Uh, gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Well, Eve didn't want to be left out, so she jumps into the the blame game, and she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, relationships are now broken. Instead of enjoying the time together, instead of enjoying God's creation, instead of enjoying the work that God had given, now, They're ready to initiate the blame game and jump on top of each other. Your fault, your fault. I don't know if, um, how many of you have seen Meet the Robinsons? Familiar with it anyway. 
So let me see if I can do this. I'm trying, going to try and reverse lip sync. You know how that goes. Uh, no. Not going to work. Anyway, the, 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 the way he, this goes is he goes, let's see, take responsibility for my own life or blame you. Ding, ding, ding. Blame you wins hands down. Right? And so we do that, right? We play the blame game. We, we try and uh, put the responsibility off on somebody else. And, and that's what Adam and Eve were trying to do. Okay. So in chapter 4, which I just read, Kohala has four observations about relationships. So this chapter, relationships is really the thing that holds these various vignettes together. And he talks about oppression. He talks about motivation for work coming from envy. He talks about isolation. And he talks about leadership. And so we'll delve into each of these a little bit um, in the course of our, our time together. And we'll start with oppression. And let me give us a working definition of what oppression is. So oppression is when one party, person or a group, um, takes unjust or cruel advantage of the power that they have over another to benefit themselves and you know, one of the aspects of, of oppression is oftentimes it's not just benefiting themselves, but to disadvantage the other person, to make the other person uncomfortable, to make them hurt, to make them uh, not like uh, what's going on in life, right? So that is one of the characteristics of oppression. So we're going to uh, break up into small groups, and um, let's talk about oppression. You know, one of the questions... Uh, Let me just give you a a quick example of something that I experienced in my life. And it was a case where I could clearly see that oppression might look very different from one side versus the other side. And it was when I was working for HP. I was a, a manager. I had a group of folks working for me. And I had an engineer who was a, a marketing engineer. He was good. I, I really enjoyed uh, our relationship. He became a good friend to me. He worked really hard. He would be in the office at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. He'd still be there at 6 or 7 in the evening. And so one day, uh, he told me that he was going to go uh, to work out in the gym. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. I said, yeah, go have a great time. I, you know, I hope you enjoy your workout. I had an administrative assistant that sat right next to me. He was across the aisle from me. Administrative assistant sat next to me. And after he left, she complained, oh, you never tell me to go enjoy my workout, enjoy my lunch. Well, the relationship, from my perspective, her relationship with work was very different from from my friend. She would show up eh, five or ten minutes late, typically on the morning. She'd have a half-hour break for lunch and usually took 45 minutes, and come 5 o'clock, she was out the door. And so my relationship with her was encouraging her to get her work done. My relationship with John, my friend, was encouraging him to have a life beyond work because that's where they were. I'm pretty sure that she saw it differently, that she saw, she felt oppressed, and she might have even thrown in this He's a professional person, and I'm an administrative person, and you know you're you're giving him advantage, and I'm feeling like you're treating me as a second-class citizen, right? So I could see as I was kind of playing that through that my side of what that looked like might be quite different from his side or her side. So as we get into the small groups, think about your own lives. How might you have experienced oppression in your life? And it's okay if you haven't. Um, I haven't really experienced much that I would consider serious oppression, although there have been times when I've felt disadvantaged relative to people around me. But are we knowingly or unknowingly? And for this morning's conversation, let's take the benefit of the doubt and say, let's think about unknowingly and not assume that we've been knowingly oppressing others. But how might 
other people see uh, our lives oppressing them in their lives. So why don't we break down into groups of uh, three or four and we'll take about uh, six minutes on that. Okay, um, thank you for, for that. Uh, by the way, one of the things I meant to do earlier was give you an update on my appliance. <laughs> so, they, uh, so they looked at my finger, they said, it looks great, four more weeks. I went, thank you very much. <laughs> so we'll go back four, in four weeks and then they say, he says he's going to give me uh, just a little um, sleeve that will go on the finger and then the rest of the hand won't be affected anymore. But. Well, we regret that you've been so impressed. Yes, I've been impressed. Thank you. I appreciate your recognition there. Uh, okay. So, Kohelet says that oppression is terrible. He recognizes oppression as being not much fun at all. In fact, he says, and, and he has this, uh, this pattern of talking about something being bad, uh, a first I am something better than that and something better still. He doesn't use best, but he says better and better still, right? Um, he says that power is on the side of the oppressor and there is no comfort for the oppressed. And so he thinks that perhaps oppression is so bad, so uncomfortable, you'd be better off dead than living through more of this oppression that you're going through. And come to think about it, maybe you'd be better off never having been born at all and not having had to experience the oppression. So, is he not liking his life? Is he wishing he hadn't been born? Tom? Okay, so I kind of think this is kind of like Job's, Job's friends told him all his bad advice. Yeah. To me, to me this, is, this is terrible advice. Yeah. You know, um, that, that um, I congratulated the dead. You know, they're better off. They're just, you know, God's given us a purpose in life. Yes. Direction. And, and, and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't think that way. Yeah. So, so I, so I think that he was not really trying to say realistically, I don't want, I wish I hadn't been born. He's just acknowledging that oppression is so uncomfortable, it's so nasty, it's so hard to live with, that sometimes you think, gosh, I, you know, I wish I'd never had to experience this. Okay. So that's kind of where he's coming from, I think, in this. Um, particular story. So, if we go on to what is the kingdom view, um, how did Jesus treat this question of oppression? Um, let's start with looking at some a couple of Old Testament uh, proverbs, actually, that say that we should not oppress others. So, the Bible is clear that, that we should not be oppressors. That is not our role in life. Um, Proverbs 14.31, those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him, that is, honors the maker. Proverbs 22.16 says, a person gets ahead by opposing the a person who gets ahead by oppressing the poor or by showering gifts on the rich will end in poverty. So that's kind of saying, you might not get everything you thought you were going to get out of oppressing other folks. But that still you should not be oppressing others. Moving on, um, we, when, when oppressed, we should not take it upon ourselves to remedy or resolve, right the wrongs that might have been occurred. Jesus said in Luke, 20, Luke 6, 27 and 28, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And in Romans 12, we see, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Jesus lived in a time where oppression was common. It was an everyday occurrence. It was an everybody occurrence, almost Everybody experienced some sort of oppression. We, our society today, many of us face little or no oppression in the course of our lives. 
in the time of the Roman government, almost everybody faced depression of some kind, much of the time. Jesus did not, not only did not go and uh, make crusades against oppression, he said that you should love those who are oppressing you. And, and in fact, one of the evidences of oppression would be that a, Ro- a Roman soldier could come and demand that you carry his gear for a mile. And Jesus said, carry the second mile. Rather than saying no and kicking, trying to kick the Roman rule off, treat them like somebody that you cared about rather than somebody who was oppressing you. That's not easy to do. I'm not saying that's easy to do. These are hard words to live by. So well, I guess my question is, is that really, is that really not righting the wrongs of oppression or is that just a totally different strategy for eventually righting those wrongs? So it's a long-term view, yeah. certainly. Um, and, and, and we see in the New Testament over and over again that God is saying, in the end, it will be righted. Do not expect that it's going to be righted in your neighbor, in your time frame, in your life, you know, in your uh, direct environment. But God does says that He will help. We see in First Peter five seven, cast your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And Hebrews thirteen, um, the first few verses of Hebrews thirteen are all about many different things, different ways that we should live uh, Christian life, different uh, habits and, and uh, processes we should, should live by. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, so you can confidently, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. So we, yes, what man does to us may be, we won't like, right? That will happen. Oppression is not comfortable. We never will like oppression. But we need not fear it. We need not feel like that is our ultimate end. Our ultimate end is determined by God. Going on, if you're oppressed by your faith, you should be joyful. Okay, so the New Testament, Jesus takes it one step forward and and we see it from... um, Um, Peter as well, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and Jesus had many of these, you've heard, but I say, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then Peter picks up this message, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So in the writings of the apostles and the the early disciples, we see over and over again that they stressed the joy of being able to share in Christ's suffering. And And their point over and over again was, if you are suffering for the name of Christ, then you are living life like Jesus. You are experiencing what Jesus experienced. And you should be glad and and, and joyful about that. Well, maybe not glad, but certainly joyful. right? So there is a distinction between them. But that should bring you joy to know that that God has felt like you are worthy of living through some of the suffering that Jesus went through. And finally, on oppression, oops, sorry, Um, yeah. Again, back to the notion that we're not, our role is not to fix the oppression that's, that's in our world around us today. But Jesus didn't ignore it. And he didn't ignore it in the sense that he did not go and try and change what was happening but he cared for those who were caught in an area of impression, of oppression. So, in the case of the woman caught in adultery, there were two involved, right? Only the woman was brought before the, the, the magistrates to try and, you know, and, and accuse her and stone her. That was a clear situation where she was being oppressed. She was caught in sin, no doubt about that. 
but the fact that she was being unfairly uh, uh, caught out, called out, whereas the man was being ignored, that was that was wrong, and Jesus uh, addressed that. The Samaritan woman, Jesus crossed many social and and religious and and um, um, social boundaries in order to talk to the woman in Samaria. She would have been considered would, would have been looked down on and to the extent that they could oppressed by the by the Jewish people. Jesus went and and connected with her. And the healed man with the withered hand, the uh, leaders of Jerusalem were happy to to feel like that person deserve what he had, he, he sinned or his parents sinned, and he should, he should uh, suffer the consequences. And so Jesus said, nope, that wasn't your fault. I'm going to fix that for you. So we see that in Jesus' life over and over again. He recognized people who were in oppressed situations, and he tried to connect with them and to help them to the extent that he could. But what he not, did not do is he didn't try and throw off the yoke of Rome, he didn't try and uh, go to people in power and tell them, you're oppressing these, you're wrong to do that. He did tell them that you should believe in the one who sent, who, who he came for, right? He did bring the kingdom message everywhere he went. He did not try and fix the social problems of his day. Questions, comments about this topic of oppression? Well, um, Luke 10, um, Jesus um, said that a uh, woe to you, Jerusalem, to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred to you, they would have repented long ago. So that there's judgment coming for, for, for people that don't respond. Um, um, but you know, we don't have to initiate that judgment. Right, right. That's not our job. Um, our job is to try and be on the right side of the judgment, which is on the side where Jesus is, is uh, telling us, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than be on the side where Jesus is saying, you did not do what I told you to do. I'm going to th- cast you out into darkness. Right? Well. So here, I mean, here it says in, um, they had no one to comfort them. The oppressed, the oppressed had no one to comfort them. But Jesus brings comfort calls us to be comforters for the oppressed, and he sends the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Right. So he's addressing this in a completely different way. That's right. The kingdom of God comes in totally unexpected relative to the power cycles of human kingdoms. Yep. Sim. I agree that Jesus' mission on earth is unique, but one example that comes to mind is William Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. I mean, God clearly gave him the mission to do what he could in his position. And and I think in our day and age, in our own capacity, if God has given us um, the, the ability and the calling and put us in a position where we could alleviate we certainly should not be indifferent to it, right? Um, we should not be in, uh, involved in oppressing others. And to the extent that we can help people, yes, that is uh, an appropriate role. But um, Jesus made no attempt to overthrow uh, the Roman rule, to, to uh, change um, the power structures of his day. But he did try and change the, the uh, position of individuals wherever he went. One last thing. His, his teaching uh, impacted the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, before Jesus, women didn't have rights. And, right. You know, uh, and I think um, Calvin and the Reformers did the same thing. Uh, Tyndale, um, I mean, Tyndale wanted people to have a Bible. And, and uh, you know, a Bible they can read, understand. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a role for 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 social, you know, you know, to do things in the world that change the world. Yeah.
work ethic and all that came through, through Calvin and the Reformation. Yep. Okay. Let's move on then from um, oppression. The next topic that Kohelet addressed is work motivation. And he said in uh, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Keeping up with the Joneses, the way we talk about it in our day, right? So, verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Those passages are somewhat hard to interpret. There's a lot of disagreement amongst um, scholars and, and, and uh, commentaries as to, as to what the meaning of that is. I'd like for you guys to grapple with that for just a few minutes together in your small groups again. What what is uh, what is the, the author trying to say here? What is Kohelet saying with these two two verses? So why don't you break into your small groups, and we'll spend about three or four minutes looking at this passage and trying to come to grips with what it might say. All right. Why don't we come back together again? And Judy's going to be scribed for me. And let's capture some of what what you concluded in your small groups. Somebody want to offer their version? I don't think it's that bad. It, okay. there's, there's two verses, but there's three things going on. Verse 5 is complete laziness. And it's going to consume you. 6a um, seems like the, it's about moderation, and 6b seems like it's about workaholics. And my group, Judy, said that um, that word quietness, she sees it as contentment. Okay, great. Anybody have a different version, Sim? We actually went back to verse 4 uh-huh. and looked at the motivation. <clears throat> right. And um, it says that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Mm-hmm. So it's the keeping up with the Jones mentality. Right. right. So that would describe... Um, in this version, you've got the. You, you were talking about, Gaylene, you were talking about uh, moderation and then uh, laziness, and then the, the this toil was, was what you were describing, right, Sim? Trying to, to get um, as much as you can. Right. 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 Any other opinions? Thoughts? Go ahead. Um, I was kind of thinking the, the first one, the but any kind of complacence that keeps you in a self-destructive pattern. Mm-hmm. So that could be laziness or it could be workaholic. Right. So with some kind of meaningless continual habit that is self-destructive. And so in the second one, um, it kind of it kind of goes towards both like why are you doing what you're doing? Wouldn't it be better to have something? Uh huh. Okay. Great. Thanks. The second one being the moderation. The, the moderation and quietness. Any other additional thoughts on that? Thanks, Judy. We gotta write this up, man. We got the scholars yeah. speaking. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Lucas. I was thinking um, the way that God intends to provide for his people is from his own generosity and huh. not solely from the generosity of those who are willing to work the hardest. Yeah. So okay. um, it says that to the sinners he gives the task of gathering 
so that he can give it to his children. Uh, so we see that his plan for us is, does not necessitate us working hard so we can give more to the poor, which is for us. Right, right. Good, good addition. Okay, so um, I do have my version of this. Um, nope, sorry. That's the next one. Um, and and so this was, you, you guys pretty much, I think, captured right on to, to, to where I was thinking, which is the fool kind of folds his hands and goes, I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. And... Uh, and he suffers from that. He has nothing. He um, he ruins himself, or he eats his own flesh, or he uh, he has poverty, right? And the, the man who is motivated by envy, he's got both of his hands out there working and trying to get everything he can and trying to grab as much as he can in any way he can, right? And and that then is toil and striving after the wind and. And Kohelet says, better is the man who has, is working and is helping himself, but has the sense to have constraint and to not go after everything he can possibly get and to enjoy what he has, what he has gained through his work. So, good work. And I like some of the comments that you guys added to it um, as well. So, a question. Yeah. So four four seems to advocate that capitalism is not good. Because capitalism four says five says communism is not good. <laughs> yes. Yes. There, there are many problems with capitalism. There's no doubt from a from a Christian perspective, capitalism is not nirvana. It is not a kingdom uh, approach. It is better than most of the other systems that we have for government in the world. Uh, our whole country is based on competition in a lot of ways. Yep. And I don't see anything wrong with competition. As, as long as it's good, honest competition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And under the sun, the, the, the competition uh, where it says, I win, you lose. Your life is miserable. Mine is great. That is taking it too far, right? And and that is where capitalism leads you, where it's unfettered by um, the values by by uh, Judeo-Christian values. So capitalism, as it was set up in our country, was generally set up within the construct of Judeo-Christian values. We've lost that in our country. That has not been the case even in some of the other countries that adopted capitalism. And it does lead to some, some bad outcomes. Other questions or comments? Okay. Let's move on then to um, labor and achievement. Okay, so we just talked about that. Um, I did want to go back and revisit a conversation we had about work two weeks ago. We spent a whole morning talking about work, and, or you know, a whole hour session. Um, and just a reminder that we talked about we should be building God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. And remember we said if we build our own kingdom, then hevel, we, there's uncertainty, there's, there's enigma. We don't know whether it will last or not. It may slip right out of our hands. But if we're building God's kingdom, then... Um, then that is more likely to last and there's nothing better for a person than to eat and to drink and to enjoy the toil of his labor, uh, of his toil. And finally, um, we won't be motivated by envy of our neighbors if we're trying to build God's kingdom. Because if our neighbor is building God's kingdom well, then we'll be working with him. If our neighbor is not building God's kingdom, then we're on a different trajectory trying to accomplish a different goal. Okay? All right. So the next topic that Kohela addresses is isolation. And we looked at Genesis um, 2 earlier, and that uh, talked about the importance of us being in um, community. 
in that in chapter two when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, Kohelet talked about the the problem with a man who such as himself, who had accomplished much, who had amassed much, who had acquired much, who had built much. And then he looked at his successors and went, I don't know if he's going to be a fool or if he's going to be wise and he might totally lose everything I've gained or misused or not care about it at all. And his response to that was, well, that's Hevel. That's, you know, not nice. Here he takes it one step further and he says, Here's a guy, he doesn't have his successor. He doesn't have anybody. He doesn't know who will get his stuff. He's all by himself. He's working and he's toiling. And the only thing that has him working harder is his eyes see more to get. And he just goes after what he can see. There's no long-term strategy. There's no, here's what I'm going to do with it. He's just trying to get because he can, right? And so... Kohelet says, under the sun now, um, even in the context of under the sun, two is better than one. And he gives some specific areas in which two is better than one. First of all, work goes better. You you, uh, can build with each other's work. You can enjoy each other's results. Work is, is better with two of you. Second, you can keep each other from falling. In the the uh, days of, of Jesus and in, in, in medieval days in ancient times, medical capabilities were very limited. And typically, if you fell and were injured, the odds were good you were never going to get back to the level of capability you had before you fell. If you fell and weren't damaged, it was no problem. But if you fell and, 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 and broke a bone or you, you tore something, you were done. You were going to live with that for the rest of your life. So falling was a big deal. Having somebody to help you keep from falling is very important. Uh, Keeping warm on a cold night. We've had a few cold nights here the last few nights. I don't know about you, but we live in a very nice house. We, We don't have to fight too hard to keep warm. But again, in the ancient days, staying warm was a real struggle. So having some somebody to help keep you warm was a, was a helpful, and help defend your defend each other. Again, they lived in a constant uh, area where war and and fighting with each other went on all the time, and just going from one town to another, you may uh, find yourself having to defend yourself. Yep. Okay. Um, so he says that two are better than one. Then. Three is better still, and this again is, is Kohelet's better and better, right? Three is better than two. Let me give you a personal story on three is better than two. Judy and I, when we got married, we used three is better than th- a quarter, three strands is not easily broken as our uh, motto for our marriage. And three strands was the strongest cord that, could, that you could get in, uh, in um, ancient times. Three stands gave you the strongest cord. And we saw it as being the two of us plus God, right? And so we felt like taking those three together, we were much stronger than either of us together. So we celebrate our, we we celebrate our 40th anniversary this year, God willing. So apparently it helped. All right. So if we look then at the kingdom view, uh, God's a trinity, and he was in relationship, and we were built as image bearers. We were given his image. And so uh, he designed us to be in community, to be in relationship. Um, Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He wanted us to be with other believers and he said, I, if you're together with other believers, then I will be with you. And, and I don't think it was a coincidence that he said two or three. He wanted us to be together. Hebrews goes on to say, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Thank you all for meeting this morning. 
um, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the, see the draw, day drawing near. So throughout scripture we see the importance of being in community and um, the fact that we will do much better as Christians if we are in community with other people. Okay. And the last one he addresses is leadership. And this is kind of an interesting one. He talks about um, current leader being an old and foolish king. And nobody liked what he was doing. And one of the problems he had is that he would gotten to the point where he didn't take input. He, uh, he wouldn't listen to, to uh, advice. And so Kohelet says that, that when that leader gets replaced by somebody new and younger with different ideas who maybe grew up in poverty and therefore was not entrapped in the same uh, modus and the same ideas that the old king had, that would be better. But he notices that that succession disappoints. It doesn't take long. You know, there are lots and lots of people who follow after the successor or the new king. And then pretty much folks come along and they go, man, we need a new king. The old one is, is no good. So they no longer are even aware of paying attention to this original king. They look at the successor king and go, we need a new king. And if you look at organizations of any size, shape, or kind, whether that's family or, uh, or churches or businesses, small, medium, large, or governments, we see, you can almost always see that, that the leader sooner or later becomes somebody that uh, people want to have replaced. Um, but that the, you get a new leader and pretty soon you want a new leader again. So, this is a, a more lengthy passage, but here's what the kingdom view says. Here's what uh, God says relative to our leadership. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Again, the context being Roman government, right? The Roman government would certainly not be what people would consider a paradigm of, of virtue, right? It was for those people that they had conquered, it was not a great uh, environment to be in. But his point was that God put them in control. God has put authorities in place throughout our lives. And our... Yes, we can look for helping ways to help our people in authority improve what they do, and that's a good thing to do. Uh, we can look for better authority when that becomes a possibility. And in our nation, we have the ability to elect people and to make changes in government um, at multiple levels of government. But that God has put those people in, in authority we are to respect their authority because it is behind it. God is behind them, not not just man's constructions. Okay, that uh, it ends our three sessions. Let me. Yes. This must have this one kind of mere biography of Solomon at the end of his life. He kind of walks away from God. And God raises one person. He starts chasing after him. He flees. Then Jeroboam, God anoints him to be king. Solomon hears about it. He tries to kill him. He flees. Like, yeah. isn't exactly what happened in his life? It certainly could be. And, and so when people look at the content of 
of um, Ecclesiastes, there's much discussion about who was the writer. I think the, perhaps the best conclusion is that it wasn't Solomon himself who wrote it, but it was Solomon's content that got captured here by a, a later writer. And so this content that reflects Solomon's life would be a, uh, certainly consistent. It's right for you to see it as Solomonic. So, yeah. like, if you yeah. if you read this by saying yes, like Solomon wrote it, in some ways you are like it's the author intends for you to experience it throughout the midst of that, um, even though like maybe scholarship might say otherwise about the actual author. So, right. um, but it could have also been Solomon who wrote it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there's just different viewpoints. We, we don't know. Yes. That's, yep. that's good. Okay, any other comments or questions? Go ahead. 13. Um, Jesus talked about becoming as a little child mm-hmm. to enter the kingdom of heaven. He can't, the, to become a, uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become as a child. I think he says, uh, a poor, poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king. Yeah. Who no longer knows uh, how to receive instruction. Yeah. um, Yeah. And we should certainly pay attention to that as well. We should be recognizes that we need to receive instruction and input to our lives throughout our lives. We get to the point where we're like that old and wise king, then people are going to want to move us out of power as well, whatever we have. Right. And then you have to be open to new ideas and embrace new ideas. Right. Yep. So, just a summary here. Um, Oppression is a huge burden. We should certainly seek God's help to bear it if we face it. Um, We should be working to build God's kingdom. I'll repeat that from two weeks ago. Um, We're made for fellowship, not isolation, and we should uh, find that fellowship with fellow believers. That's the best place for us to find fellowship. And God puts leaders in place. We should honor them according to the responsibility God has given them. Thank you all for coming. Let me close this with a quick word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for uh, giving us instruction in how we should live. We pray as, uh, as we go away that your words would continue to percolate through our thoughts and our minds and that you would help us to change who we are because, of, because we've seen the truth and, and the truth changed us. We give you praise for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.